We are on session number three, night number three of our seminar together. I'm going to repeat myself, but we're not meeting next week. Next week uh, is 4th of July, so we will not be here, but we're glad that you're here tonight. And uh, you see the title on the screen, but let's do a little bit of a review, or preview rather, I should say, not review. We've already gone through two sessions, and uh, we've got three more after tonight. We'll skip next week, and then three weeks in July, we're going to be covering sessions four through six, counting the cost. We're going to be looking at saving, spending, and budgeting, and then trading the talents. That's the one we're going to deal with principles on investing to help us get a foundation on how to select proper investments based on our needs. And the last session is going to be kind of a whatever's left that I didn't finish talking about. We're just going to cram it all in there. But actually what we're going to be looking at is what's called the financial planning pyramid, which is like we used to have a food pyramid, right? That gives us an outline of how to have healthy financial position. And it's going to be a comprehensive look, bird's eye view, going to be flying through a comprehensive take on all of the components of our financial picture. Uh, this is what some of you may be interested in if you missed the two previous sessions. They are available currently on Audioverse. The audio recordings, the audio recordings as well as the slides are all there already. And uh, I can't make any promises, but I try my best to edit these and post them as quickly as I can. Last week I got it up the very next morning. I can't promise you it'll be that way every week, but uh, I will do my best. Follow this link and uh, you will see all of the new presentations as they are available on Audioverse. All right, let's get into our topic tonight. We're talking about debt. The whole session tonight, we're going to talk about debt and we're going to be looking at some specific applications of debt, the main ones being car loans and student loans, credit cards, and a home mortgage. All right, so you can get ready for those topics as we wind ourselves up here. First question though, is being in debt a sin? This is a question that every time I ask in most seminars, I get a mixed response. So I'm kind of curious in this audience, how we're divided here, who thinks this is a true statement? Being in debt is a sin. All right, we got one hand, brave soul in the back. Who thinks this is false? Being in debt is not a sin. Okay, all right, so we're actually more uni uh, unanimous here than in most other congregations. But let's take a look at a few verses. Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower is servant to the lender. The word servant really is better translated slave. And the original language gives a stronger connotation to it. And Romans 13, 8 tells us to owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Is it a sin to be a slave? Daniel was a slave. Joseph was a slave. Moses was a slave for a while until he became adopted into Pharaoh's family, of course, but all of Israel was, were slaves. Slavery in and of itself is not a sin but is it a state that we want to aspire to? No. If we find ourselves in slavery, I think top priority is to extricate ourselves from that situation as quickly as possible. Would you agree? This is the picture that the Bible gives us about debt. Debt in and of itself is not a sin, but it is not good either. So debt is bad, but not a sin. It is like slavery elsewhere. We've been told to avoid debt like smallpox. And uh, it's not a sin to be sick, right? It's not a sin to have smallpox, but it's not something that we find a desirable state to be in. And so we want to get ourselves out of debt as quickly as possible, even though it is not a sin. All right, so let's take a look at some numbers here. America is a nation of indentured servants. If the debtor is slavery, is slave to the lender. Let's take a look at some numbers. The average household debt as of March 2023 is $170,000. Average car loan, the average amount that an American family owes on cars at, in 2023 is $29,000.
The average student loan balance is almost sixty thousand dollars. Average credit card balance almost eighteen thousand dollars, and the total owed in the United States. We hear about the national debt. It's over seventeen trillion dollars. You know, trillion, billion, million—they all sound the same, but they're not the same. <laughs> A trillion is so unfathomable; it's really unbelievable. Debt, it is said, is as American as apple pie. This was this is a headline from last year, 2022. It says that 58% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck after inflation spike, including 30% of those earning $250,000 or more. It's a problem, and inflation has accelerated the dilemma, and、uh, it hits us on both sides. Inflation, on one hand, is eroding our purchasing power. But then it forces the Federal Reserve to raise the interest rates, which means all of the debt that people are borrowing is also increased in terms of their、uh, their interest rates. So this is a problem. Charlie Munger, who is a right hand man of Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, he had this to say: There are only three ways a smart person can go broke: liquor, ladies, and leverage. And the legend has it. That he said this during one of their public shareholder meetings, and Warren Buffett afterwards he edged into the mic. He said, "He added liquor and ladies just to make it sound good. It's just leverage. <laughs> and what is leverage? It's just another word for debt. Smart people think that they are so smart that they can use debt to get ahead, and then all of a sudden it bites them in the rear end, and then they're in trouble." So smart people go broke with leverage. So now, earlier we said that debt is bad, but not a sin. So is there ever a time when it is okay to have debt? I think this is an important question. When is it acceptable to have debt? In our very first session two weeks ago, we looked at a story that I'm going to revisit now. It is the story of the widow and the widow's oil. She's a single mother. She's a widow with two sons. And her husband left her a big pile of debt, and now the creditors are coming to take her sons as slaves to become to pay off the debt. So literally, the borrower is slave to the lender. I mean, literally, they're going to take her sons as slaves. She goes to Elisha, the prophet. Please help me, help me, help me. He says, "Okay, this is what I want you to do. Go get into further debt." That's what he says. Go to all your neighbors. Borrow all the all the pots and pans, all the containers, whatever you can get your hands on. Bring them home, borrow them, and I want you to think about this. This is taking a massive risk. This woman's already in debt with the creditors. Now she is at risk of offending all of her neighbors. Because back in those days, if you break one of the the pots, you don't just go down to the corner store, hardware store, or Walmart to just get a replacement. She doesn't have money to buy a replacement anyway. But you realize this is risky. This is a risky move that the prophet's asking her to do. Go borrow more containers, and then the containers were filled with the miracle oil. She kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring until every single pot was filled, and then the oil stopped. And she went. She sold the oil to pay back the debt. I kind of, in my sanctified imagination, I'm like, what kind of oil was that? You assume it's like olive oil, but maybe it was like an essential oil. I don't know. People still sell essential oils today, and、uh, apparently they make a lot of money doing it. I'm not necessarily promoting essential oils, you realize, but it does cross my mind. Like she started a little small family business. She took a business loan to purchase inventory, and then she went and she sold it for a profit, and she used that to pay off her debt. So what am I highlighting there? It was acceptable in the eyes of God for this woman to get into debt, when what she borrowed helped her to pay back the debt. There's a lesson here. Okay, there's a principle here. There are two rules for debt, and they're actually two sides of the same coin. Borrowing is acceptable only if what you're buying is able to help you pay off the debt. That's the first step, the first rule. Using more technical language, what am I talking about? 
borrowing to buy appreciating or cash flowing assets. Okay, we talked about assets last week. If what, what you're borrowing for increases in value, that's appreciation. Or if what you're borrowing to pay for helps generate more income, that's cash flow producing, then the debt might, might be acceptable. That's exactly what happened to the widow's uh, oil. And the flip side of this coin is what not to do. Never borrow money for something that only goes down in value. Okay, it's important to remember that if you buy something that you have to borrow money for and pay interest on and it goes down in value, you're not just paying a full price, you're paying more than full price. And you'll never be able to recoup uh, when you try to sell the thing, what you put into it. This is just basic mathematics, but there is a principle here and, and that is that th this is the only time when debt is acceptable. Now, let me back up for a minute. Every so often, if you listen to the financial gurus out there, you will hear them talk about this idea of good debt. Have you heard that term? Good debt versus bad debt. These are the rules for good debt. Borrowing money at a reasonable, rate of you know, a reasonable interest rate where you can earn a higher rate of return you know, through an appreciating or cash flowing asset. I have trouble with the term good debt because according to the Bible, it is still slavery to the lender. So I prefer the term acceptable debt. Acceptable debt. Uh, but at least you understand uh, what people mean when they say good debt now. So let's take a little quiz. Do these items pass the debt rules? Okay, remember the two rules. What you're borrowing for can help pay off the debt, appreciating asset or cash flow producing, and uh, it doesn't go down in value. Student loans, is it yes or no? Who says yes? Yeah, that's the one. So yes, dot, 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 but very good point, right? If, make sure everybody heard the, the, the comment there. Student loans might be acceptable, but not every student loan is created equal because not every degree is created equal. The underwater basket weaving is a great example. You have a master's degree in it, you spent 100 grand borrowing money for a degree that you know, returns zero on your investment, not acceptable debt. Uh, good distinction there. Okay, what about a home mortgage? Okay, and generally speaking, yeah, it does depend and that's why I don't say yes with emphatically, it's yes, dot, 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 because there is more to come. But generally speaking, a home is an appreciating asset. Now, can homes go down in value? You remember 2008, actually right now, home prices supposedly are coming back down in value. But over the long term, generally speaking, the property, at least the land itself, if nothing else, is a real asset that will increase in value over time. Now, what about a new iPhone? Yeah, all the children in the back, I'm glad I hear them say no, yeah. iPhones don't go up in value. Okay, now the last one. Uh, this is where people are like having to defend my poor financial choices, right? But we do have to make a point. I have to make an exception here, all right? Car loans are, cars are historically a depreciating asset. They don't go up in value. However, the last few years have been really weird. So I am making an exception, right, to say that certain times there has been uh, cars that go up in value. But in general, cars are depreciating assets and according to our debt rules, not an acceptable form of debt. There is a question here. To say depreciation or appreciation in what reference? The dollar is being depreciated. The homes depreciate slower than the dollar. That's why they appreciate. Okay. Eventually they do fall down or otherwise get old. I, I, I'm not going to get into the, the discussion on that. A home may depreciate, but the land does not. So that's, that's an important distinction. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to go deep into that, but I understand your point. So just to clarify for the recording as well, is that just because something is appreciating, it may not actually mean increase in true value. It might be increasing in relative value because the currency is debt valuing at a higher rate. I think that point is well taken. I appreciate that. We're going to talk about the car loan more in a minute and there are some exceptions yes there are always exceptions to these things but in general borrowing money for a car is not a good idea so let's make this point 
Just because a, a loan, a form of loan might be permissible, doesn't mean you have to borrow. Just because a student loan is an acceptable form of loan, doesn't mean you have to get a student loan. The best, the best plan is to never have any debt, right? Because it's still slavery to the lender. So let's keep that in mind. All right, let's talk about student loans. Student loan, we have to remember the fine print. Federal student loans can't be discharged in bankruptcy. We gotta remember this. We're not talking about private loans, we're talking about the federal loans, which is what most student loans are. And that means there are only two ways to get out of a student loan. The first is you pay it off. The second is you die. I think I know which one I prefer. The best is not to have a student loan at all, but if you do have a student loan, you're going to have to pay it back. The government can even garnish your tax refunds. They're just gonna save you the postage. Aren't they nice? They're just being, helping you with the, making it more convenient for you. And just because you qualify, you shouldn't take the max amount. Just because it's permissible, doesn't mean you should take the max amount of the loan. I've heard people say, oh, I qualify for $30,000. My degree only cost me 20, so of course I'm gonna borrow the full amount. No, because you're gonna have to pay the 30,000 back with interest. It ain't free money, people, that's the point. But now, 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 there's a big word floating around, and that is student loan forgiveness. Have you heard this in the news recently? In fact, it's a big polit political hot potato, I realize that. I have had people ask me, shouldn't I just plan my life around the fact that the president or whatever politician is going to forgive my student loans at some point? The answer is, do you want to stake your future on a government promise? Mm-mm-mm. The current situation with the student loan forgiveness program uh, in this country right now is very much in limbo. I still remember there were people who were you know, hitting me up like, see, I told you, I told you, when the President Biden's debt reduction plan came out not long ago. And I said, oh, really? Let's just wait and see if it actually comes into play. And guess what? It's sitting in the Supreme Court right now. And it's going to happen, you know, the decision is supposed to come down any moment now. The point is just this. Current student loan forgiveness programs, there are some already in effect. They are a hot mess. The majority of people who apply for them do not get them. And those who appro appro supposedly get approved end up finding out that they don't qualify way down the line after they invest 10 or 20 years fulfilling the payment conditions. And the student loan <clears throat> forgiveness program that is currently going on uh, being considered is only for a portion of the student loan debt. And there is no guarantee as of right now that it's actually going to be to stand uh, scrutiny after the Supreme Court takes up the case or, or, or comes to their conclusion. And so there's one other secret that may or may not be a factor is that there is a hidden tax bomb with debt forgiveness. It may, or, it may not apply to student loan forgiveness if the politicians build into the legislation. But just a little secret that you should remember. If you have debt that is forgiven in the eyes of the IRS, that is income. That you have to declare the year that you get it forgiven. So, oh, you have $100,000 in student loan debt and it gets forgiven. Guess what? Your income that year just went up by $100,000. That's called the hidden tax bomb with tax forgiveness. There's no free lunch. So what is my point? If you have student loans, pay it off. Don't blame someone else. We might have been dumb and ignorant when we signed for the student loan paper when we went to college. I'm sorry. Life's tough. Now is the time for us to own up to the mistakes that we might have made or things that we wish we had done differently, but uh, counting on the government to ride to our rescue, I can't think of a worse idea personally. So student loans, a lot more that could be said about it. I need to hasten on, but if we have time at the end during our question and answer time, if you want to hear my story, how I ended up going through Southern for my master's degree debt-free, you can bring up the question at the end if we had time. But as of right now, I'm gonna need to leave this topic. We have a lot more to cover. Student loans, 
uh, one of these days, I'll come back and, and, and do a full seminar on, on all this, on that, on that topic. But let's talk about the car. I want to get practical here. I want to talk about buying a car without a loan. How do you actually do that? Because, yes, we're going to need a vehicle. We live in America. It's not designed for walking or biking. Like, we're going to need a car to get to work. I understand that. But how do you do that without a loan? Because a car is so expensive, especially now. Well, here is the premise. The premise is that if you can afford the car payment after you make the purchase, you can afford the car payment before you buy the car. Do I speak the truth? Because if you went into a car dealership and you sign on the dotted line, okay, and I have the average new car payment nowadays, insanity, is $725 a month for a 68-month term, okay? So somehow, after I sign for the car, I magically have $700 more to spend on the car? No, it doesn't work that way. Like, the money has to be there before. So the point is, if we can invert this process so that we pay for the car, make the car payment before we sign in the dealership, then we can invert this process and not have to get into debt at all. So how do you do this? The basic steps are these. Number one, and it's the most difficult step for many of us, we have to drive a cheap, temporary car. And I should have bolded the word temporary because it is not a permanent state. It could be a very short period, actually. But we need to be willing to swallow our pride for a little bit of time for this plan to work. Number two, then we pay ourselves the car payment. That's another fancy way of saying just save up for it. Number three, use amount that is saved plus the equity of that temporary car that we can sell to upgrade to the next car in cash, and then you repeat as needed. All right, let's put some numbers to this. I used to say buy a $2,000 temporary car. I think that is still possible for the record, but people got on my case. A couple seminars, people stood up and protested, saying, it is impossible to get a decent car for $2,000. All right. So I said, I'm just going to put $5,000, all right, just to make those people happy. Uh, but you realize that $5,000 is not the lowest you can go. You can go lower than that. Now, you buy the cheap car, and then you save your $725 a month for 12 months. And I'm using 725, you realize you can fill that in with the number that you can afford. That's just the average number based on uh, my research so far. So at the end of 12 months, you will have $8,700, plus you have the equity in that $5,000 car, which probably hasn't lost much value after driving it for 12 months. So you sell that car, you take your cash, and now you can upgrade to a 12, 13,000-ish dollar car. That's quite an upgrade. How long did you have to drive that $5,000 car? I'm not even going to call it a junker, because $5,000, I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes in the listings. You can get a pretty nice car for five grand, okay? So it's not even a clunker, but in just 12 months, you've more than doubled the value of your car, because you paid yourself first, okay? You want to move up some more? You save another $725 per month. For 12 more months, you have another $8,700. You sell that second car, and then you upgrade to now a roughly 20-ish thousand dollar car. Now you're pushing like new car territory, right? The low end of new cars. So that's one method, and you can just repeat on year three. So by the end of 36 months, you're already up to almost a $30,000 vehicle. Whereas the person that bought his first car, he's still in debt for 68 months altogether. Like he's still got another three years left. There's another way to do this. You buy that $5,000 temporary car, you save the full $725 dollars per month for the full 68 months, you have almost 50 grand, you sell that car and now you can buy a whole fleet of vehicles. There are two ways to look at this, but what am I saying here? Buying a car is buying a depreciating asset. Historically speaking, a car only goes down in value. So purchase it as a tool that does not increase in value. We're not going to be borrowing a whole bunch of money for our, our instant pot or our toaster. Right? Like, we're not going to put that on the credit card. So why would we do that to a, a driving appliance that's going to go down in value? Now, 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 everybody's going to be like, oh, but my car is going to be a classic. It's going to go up in value. Sorry, your Toyota Corolla is never going to be a classic. It's going to go down in value. 
But what about the exception I talked about? There is a mild exception, all right? And that is if you are using the car in the business, if the vehicle is income producing for you, then all of a sudden the math changes. And actually a lot of the math change if you're dealing with a business setting, right? I will even throw this out there that sometimes leasing a car is appropriate for business. <gasps> oh, yes, I actually said it. Don't tell Dave Ramsey I said that. But sometimes that is appropriate. Okay, so there are exceptions, I, I, I concede that. But for most people, for personal use, uh, don't borrow to buy a car. What about this car market bubble? It's been weird the past few years. Car, used car prices increased 40% year over year through 2022. They're starting to come down now in 2023. And we also have record high interest rates. And so used cars, like my van that I bought used several years ago, I put 50,000 miles on it, and I can sell it now almost for the same price I bought it for. Like that's never been, never before has it happened in the history of the car market. And so a lot of people are like, well, now's the time to buy, because now cars are going up in value. I say, eh, eh, eh. This is the riskiest time to buy. You want to buy when something is on sale, not when it's high, because what's going to happen? You buy a car that historically only goes down in value, you buy it overpriced and at the highest interest rates ever, and if the economy goes down, if there's a recession, if you lose your job, guess what happens? Your car gets repossessed, or you can't make the car payments, or at best, you're going to be underwater. So you don't want to be caught underwater in an overpriced car loan. So we just got to keep our presence of mind when it comes to when it comes to uh, these things. All right, so that was kind of glitchy there, but I think we can see. All right, so let's talk about paying off debt. So put the car discussion off to one side. So how do we pay off debt that we already have? Maybe it's a student loan, credit cards, car loan, whatever it might be. The first step, we have to own the debt. And don't make excuses and don't play the victim. That's just counterproductive. It's the government's fault. It's the school's fault. It's the dealership's fault. It's the bank's fault. It's everyone's fault. Well, guess what? You still have to pay the debt. So don't be the victim. You got to just grit your teeth, suck it up, conquer the mountain that's in front of you. There is no alternative to making big payments. You just have to pay it off. Sometimes you can negotiate with creditors, and I would recommend that you do if you are in a position to do that, but that won't eliminate the debt. It might reduce it, which is always a good thing to do, but you need to plan on paying it off. Make debt payoff the number one priority in your short-term savings plan. Then squeeze every dime out of your monthly spending plan. The borrower is slave to the lender. If you are in slavery, you will want to get out of slavery as soon as you can. You have to keep this mentality, this intensity about you when you are in debt. Don't worry about other investments until your debt, and I make the exception for your house, is paid off, and you want to use the debt snowball method. So what is the debt snowball method? The debt snowball, you list your debts from smallest to largest balance, okay, smallest to largest balance, and you pay minimum on all the debts except the smallest one, and you focus your efforts to pay off that one first, wipe it off your ledger, and then you roll whatever you have left onto the next one, onto the next one, onto the next one. So it's got this mentality, this idea of a, a snowball rolling down the hill. So this is an example. This person has two credit cards, a car loan and student loans. $1,000 for the credit card number one, $2,500 for credit card number two, $10,000 for a car loan, $25,000 for a student loan for a total of $38,500 in debt. If they have $1,000 towards this debt, both credit cards will be gone in four months. So it will be four months and it will feel like they're halfway done. It's, they're not halfway done in terms of dollar amount, but in terms of the itemized list They've been able to scratch off two items on their list, and let me tell you, that feels good. It's like we're, we're getting somewhere. There's some momentum. Those credit cards are shredded up. The statements aren't coming anymore. It's just less clutter. You're more focused. And so you attack the car loan next, and then the student loan next. And the longest, in this scenario, the longest it should take is 39 months to pay off these loans. And of course, once the momentum starts going, Generally, generally speaking, people, you know, they find money in, in places, they get a little more energetic, and usually it gets done a little bit faster. So there's also this discussion, well, is it better to, to pay it off based on balance or based on interest rate? 
Mathematically, paying your debt off in order from highest to lowest interest rate will save you the most money. That's just a mathematical fact. However, the psychological motivation of seeing small wins helps you stay the course. So this is behavioral finance. It's not just mathematics. It's also how do we uh, deal with human irrationality? How do we actually get ourselves to, to get off the starting line and to keep at this and to maintain our perseverance? And the, the snowball method helps people stay the course better. But let me just put it out there. If you insist that you want to pay off the highest balance or highest interest rate first, please be my guest. I just do it. Like, the method we can debate, but the point is, as long as you're making the effort to pay off your debt, that's what matters, okay? The worst thing is just sit back and ignore the thing and pretend that it's not happening while the interest keeps piling up. I like to say, paying off debt is the best investment. If you regret being debt-free, it's easy to undo it. Give it a try. See how it suits you. If you really don't like being debt-free, go knock yourself out. Open a credit card and, and do that. Speaking of credit cards, all right, this is, this, is a, this is a big one. Credit cards, I've got some thoughts on credit cards, all right? Number one, credit cards are not dangerous. They're just pieces of plastic. Credit card use without self-control is dangerous. The issue is not the tool. The issue is the hand that wields the tool. Like so many things in personal finance, it's not the finance half that's the problem. It's the personal half that's the problem. It's like 80% personal behavior, 20% math. The fact of the matter is you can live without credit cards. It is possible. You can use debit cards. You can use cash. You can write checks. That's fine. You don't have to have credit cards. But credit cards do have benefits. And this is where I diverge from our friend Dave Ramsey. He is very, you know, he has a moral position against credit cards. I don't go as far as he does. I acknowledge what he says. It is true. You can live without credit cards. If people choose to live without credit cards, more power to them. I have no, I have no burden to dissuade them from living in that, you know, in that way. But here's the facts. There are only two rational, optimal ways to view credit cards. Only two. One is you don't use them at all. The Dave Ramsey method. No credit cards whatsoever, zero, zilch, none. The other is you put everything humanly possible on the credit card and pay them off every month. Those are the only two rational gears if you're trying to be optimal. Uh, we're gonna talk about that more in just a moment, but you know, one thing that often comes up with Dave Ramsey is you know, the credit score. Dave Ramsey likes to say, you don't need a credit score. It's true, you can get through life without having a credit score. But why put yourself through that trouble if you don't need to? My point is, the way that I see it is, a credit score, it is a way of life. Is it the best way to handle things in business? Maybe not. But the way that things are set up, if you don't have a credit score, you're going to pay more if you're going to borrow money for a house or if you do end up getting a, a car loan. You may have higher rent, or you may be denied rent. There are job applications that check your credit history and your credit score. All of these things can be easily avoided if we develop self-control to use our credit wisely. So my perspective is, why not develop the self-control? Develop our character. It's a tool. The tool itself is not the dangerous part. It's misuse based on the lack of knowledge. And so, Credit cards, I remember uh, several seminars, people really got upset with my take on credit cards. So let me just give you one concrete example of the benefit of credit cards. I work for a ministry. We have a one-income ho household in my family. My wife stays home with the kids, and we've got two girls. And I travel a fair bit. And I get invited to speak, I have business trips and so forth. And usually travel is not covered for my family. And we have a general policy that whenever possible, we go together. That's just a value that we have that we agreed upon. I work for ministry, single, single income family. How am I gonna pay to fly my, my family across the country? You know what the secret is? Credit cards. There are bonus points and so forth that I'm able to get free tickets, free hotel rooms, free airlines uh, miles, and, and all of those things that essentially, whenever we travel now, 
I get my ticket paid for through, you know, whether the speaking appointment, you know, they pay or my business expense, and my family travels for free. That is a real, legitimate, tangible, practical application of how credit cards are used, and I pay them off every month. Like, I'm not in debt. And uh, it's a way of leveraging the tools in a way that intelligently allows my family to do things that previously we're not able to do. Now, is this going to make me a millionaire? No. But does it allow my family to, to live in such a way that we are able to still maintain the values that we wanted to maintain? The answer is yes. It gives us opportunities like that. So credit card usage. What are, what are, what's the proper way of using them? Number one, don't use them to buy stuff you don't need, right? That's bottom line. Don't spend money on stuff you don't need. It is easier to you know, swipe a card and, and not have to pay right away. I understand that. That is a challenge. But that's where the self-control comes in. We need to have a budget. We're going to talk about that in our next session in two weeks. Remember, the credit card debt is unacceptable. Never carry a balance and pay them off every month. I can't underscore this enough right now. Interest rates, the Federal Reserve is just continuing to raise rates, and that means the revolving credits, like credit cards, those rates are going up too. And so credit card debt is worse than ever. You need to pay them off every month. And if you violate either of these first two rules, then that is time, that's an indication that, okay, I don't have the self-control. I do need to do the plastic surgery, as Dave Ramsey calls it. Cut up the cards and live on a debit card or, or cash. So we want to consolidate also our credit card use to not uh, di dilute all the rewards. I've talked to also people like, oh, I've got like 15 different cards. And they end up having like points and, and cash back and all of these miles on all these cards. And, there's so few that you end up not being able to use them. So be very judicious, have few enough that you can manage. You want to have simplicity so you don't accidentally forget to pay a card or something of the sort. All right, there's a lot that I could say about that, but I will leave that there. What about loans and loved ones? This was a fairly recent addition in my seminar on this topic because several people, multiple people have come and I have seen the hazards of loans with family members or friends. The borrower is slave to the lender. And you don't want to mix family and slavery. Not a good idea. A couple thoughts on this, okay? Lending money to friends and family can lead to financial problems and damage relationships. I think that is an understatement, but I think you get the point. Before lending money to friends and family, consider how it would affect you financially and emotionally if they fail to repay. A lot of times we just assume, oh, they'll, always, they'll pay me back. And then all of a sudden, you don't hear from them. You're not invited to their kid's wedding. They block you on Facebook. Things start happening that's just weird. And the relationship just starts to fray. Lending money can incur also tax implications for both the borrower and the lender. That may not be the case if it's a small amount, but sometimes if it's larger, it can be. You want to be aware of this on both sides of the equation, meaning if you are the lending party or the borrowing party. You have to value the relationship in its proper sphere because if you don't want to hear from someone, lend them money. You come to church, you see them at potluck, and all of a sudden they do the little crab walk out the side door. You call them up and they block your calls. And then every so often you see their pictures on Facebook and Instagram like, how are they in Greece on a vacation when they owe me money? And all of a sudden, this bitterness and this feeling, these feelings of resentment that we previously have never encountered just start welling up because someone owes us money. Loans and loved ones. I suggest avoiding it. What about co-signing? It's actually a very similar concept here. Well, you don't have to loan me money. Just co-sign for me. I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll pay the debt. I'll pay the debt. Co-signing a loan for friends and family in lieu of lending the money directly can also be problematic. And guess what? The Bible actually tells us not to do this. There are a couple of verses. Proverbs eleven fifteen: Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Proverbs 22, 26, and 27. Be not one of these who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Proverbs 17, 18. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. So if somebody asks you to co-sign for them, simple answer, the Bible tells me not to. It's good enough for me. But there is a good reason why you shouldn't. Why do you think the bank would require someone to have a co-signer? 
the banks know that they're not likely to pay it back. And guess what? Being in a situation where you co-sign for someone when you never expected to have to fork up the money to pay is even more of a, a scenario for bitterness and resentment than if you had loaned them the money outright. And uh, talking about this, you know, why should you, if you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? I saw this horrific headline. There was a lady, a woman, took a bunch of student loans, her parents co-signed for her, and then the woman died. And her parents, in their destitution, in their retirement, could not pay the student loans that their deceased daughter had taken with them co-signing. As if her death was not tragic enough, it's adding insult to injury. The Bible warns us not to go there, okay? Not to go there. So now let's talk about the house, okay? We've kind of moved our ways through all of these topics quickly, and this is the story of our house. And this is the ho our house. Some of you have been there two years. We paid it off, so let me give you the numbers. How did, what did we do? So we bought our house for $185,000. This was in 2013, by the way, 10 years ago. Our mortgage was $85,000. We had a 15-year fixed rate of 3.49% interest. Our minimum monthly payments were $607.24, but our actual payments that we actually paid monthly was $3,700, and we had a $100,000 down payment. So everybody asks, well, what's your secret? How did you pay off your house in two years? Well, if you look at the two lines on the bottom, well, that's the secret. We had a gigantic down payment, and we paid a lot every month. So what about that? How did you have such a big down payment? Well, the, the short answer is I married the right woman. That's the answer. <laughs> My wife had a dream to buy our first house in cash, and so she'd been saving up like a crazy woman ever since she got her first job. Like, even while in college, after college, I mean, like, every penny, she would just save it. So by the time we got married, we had close to 100000 We saved a little bit more, and we thought, okay, this is our chance. And then the big monthly payment, nearly all of our extra savings went toward the mortgage. We averaged six times the minimum payment. So there is no big secret. There's not, like, some special trick or, like, technique where I'm, like, having these super secret investment strategies that's like making me money in the back end. No, it's just, it's all about the savings rate. We spent very little on our living. We saved a huge amount and we just dumped it into uh, paying off the house sooner. So the benefits of paying off the house sooner was we got to live rent-free and mortgage-free, eliminating the single largest expense in our budget. And this is the, the key for why we did it in the first place. My wife and I were working, uh, both working at the time, and that's why we were able to do it so quickly, but we knew we wanted to have a family. And we knew that mom was going to stay home with the kids. And half of our income was going to go away. And so the only way the math worked to live on my income alone was we had to drastically cut our monthly expenses. And our largest single monthly expense was the mortgage. Previously, it was the rent. So we could eliminate that out of our monthly budget, all of a sudden, our numbers worked. And so we looked at our down payment, the value of the home, how much we we're bringing in, and it just all kind of lined up. We said, okay, we think we can do it in this compressed period of time, right when we're trying to have our first baby. And as it turns out, uh, we paid off our house, does it say here? Yeah, we paid off the mortgage the very month, the same month that our first child was born. So it, it worked out perfectly. And of course, we own our home now instead of the bank, so there's no risk of foreclosure. And also, it freed up our, our cash so we didn't have as much going to housing for other things. So we could invest in other things. We improved the house, garden, you know, things like that. And we put solar panels, for example, on our home. And back then, there were some incentives with TVA here in Tennessee where essentially the utility company paid us. So we also no longer paid an electric bill because our solar power gener generated more than what we, uh, what we use. And so it freed up the cash flow for other things like that. And it's just one less thing to stress about. Now, a lot of times people at this point, they wonder, oh, so does that mean I should pay off my house as quickly as possible? Well, not necessarily. Our situation was somewhat unique. We were optimizing for cash flow. But for some people, that is not a necessity. You know, maybe their income is high enough. Their, the, the mortgage is long enough that, you know, they're not going to be able to pay it off in such a short time. So 
it really does depend on the situation. If we had a smaller down payment, or if the home was more expensive, if we had a longer time horizon uh, before we could pay off the mortgage, we probably would not have paid it off so quickly. So it is very much an individualized situation. That's just the choice we made, not a prescription that I give for everyone. Okay? But looking at the, the math on the interest, in our 15-year mortgage, if we had just paid it according to the monthly minimums, we would, have had, uh, we would have paid a total of $24,300 in interest, which in the grand scheme of things is not that much relative to a 30-year mortgage or something with higher interest rate. But because we paid it off in two years, you can see we only paid a little over $3,300 in interest over the two years. And of course, the interest is front-loaded and all that, so uh, that's why there's as much as that is. So we saved nearly $21,000 in interest by paying off our mortgage early. Now, this sounds impressive, but generally speaking, this type of expense is a vampire expense. Interest payments on your mortgage, you don't feel it because it's just baked into your monthly payment. You're just paying it, you're just paying it, you're paying it. You don't, you don't see $20,000 disappearing out of your bank account. And this is the reason why people are content staying in debt because they don't feel the pain. But if we understand the math behind the interest, there's really no numerical difference. You still are going to be $21,000 short at the end of the 15 years. You just happen to have not felt it along the way. So if we are able to overcome uh, this blind side of human nature, we can actually help ourselves get ahead financially in many ways. And so, uh, there is also this notion that a mortgage is good for my taxes. Have you heard this before? It's good to have a mortgage for your taxes? Uh, not, not so fast. Only the interest payment can be deducted from your taxes, not the full payment. So that means over time, as your, as your amortization schedule goes and there's less uh, going to interest and more going to the principal, your tax deduction is going to go down. And the mortgage interest deduction only applies to those who itemize their, deduction, their deductions. And most people in America don't. In fact, the um, Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017, it almost doubled the standard deduction. So even fewer people itemize their deductions. And also, you simply save more money by paying off the loan than you would get back in the tax deduction. Because the tax deduction is only giving you, you a portion of the interest that you pay back. So yes, if you have a, if you have a mortgage, Take the tax deduction. Absolutely take it. But don't keep a mortgage just so you can have the tax deduction. All right? My friend Ed Reed, I've heard him say this. If your accountant tells you to keep your mortgage to save on your taxes, you need a new accountant. All right? So rent or buy. This is another big question, especially more recently. A lot of people are interested in moving to the country. A lot of people, refugees, leaving California, looking for a country home, for example. Should we, should we rent? Should we buy? Okay, let's talk about how do, we, how do we make this decision. First off, we need to remember, the rent that you pay for housing is the highest you're going to pay. The mortgage that you pay on your house is the lowest you're going to pay. Meaning the rent, that's all in. Maintenance, repairs, lawn care, home insurance, HOA fees, it's all baked in. But if you're buying your house and you're looking at the mortgage and you say, oh, well, my rent is $1,000 and the mortgage is going to be $1,000, well, it's a wash. Uh -uh. <laughs> if you ever own a house, you will know everything that can go wrong at some point will go wrong. And when you own the house, you don't get to call up the landlord and say, hey, uh, can you come fix the leaky, you know, the leaky drain or whatever? No, it's all on you. So this is a rent versus buy calculator, and I recommend you do a Google search. This one is on Zillow. This is the one I'm looking at. You can do a Google search, and they, are, they have them all over the place. And this gives you the break-even point on when buying becomes uh, more profitable than renting. Because the major variable to determine whether you're going to buy or rent is how long you're going to stay in the home. And 
This example, they simplify it, and they're really only asking you for three variables to begin with. And I know it's a little small, so let me read them off. So the first question is, what is your comfortable home price? And for this example, I put $350,000 for the home. How much is your down payment? If it's a 20% down payment, then we're talking $70,000 for that home. What is your comfortable monthly rent? And this example says $1,200. Now, under the little more section here, there's a lot of other variables that you can play with, but these are the three main ones. So let me give you some of these other variables that you can adjust. So what is your mortgage rate? What's the home appreciation rate? What is the rent increase rate? What are the closing costs? What are the HOA insurance, property fees? Um, property tax rather and HOA fees. What's your marginal tax rate? What is the maintenance cost, utilities cost, and what's renter's insurance? All of these variables you can put into the calculator to project what the total cost of home ownership will be compared to what the cost is to rent. And according to this calculator with this example, it will be seven years before you will gain more by buying. And generally speaking, Nowadays, rule of thumb is you need at least six to seven years, preferably 10 or more. And with interest rates the way that they are, home prices elevated the way they are, it's going to be a long time, longer than before, for you to recoup the cost of purchasing the home. And so this calculator will help people make that determination. Right? So again, this is a personal decision depending on your personal circumstance. And the number one variable is going to be how long are you going to stay in this house? If you are someone in a transient job that's going to be moving all over the place, well, you're going to have to think carefully about this because there is the, the cost of home ownership is greatly underappreciated. That is something that is just so true. A couple other questions. Do you have any other debt? Remember, how do smart people get, you know, go broke? They over leverage. And people think, oh, a house, is, it's a good debt. And so I've got credit card debt, student loan debt, I've got business loans, I've got all, you know, I've got a car loan. Well, a house is an asset, and I, everybody needs a house to get the American dream, and then they overload themselves with leverage, and then when hard times come, they get laid off, they lose their job, situation gets shaky, they have all of this debt these debt payments that they have to service on a monthly basis that they just don't have the cash flow to sustain and all of a sudden things can come crashing down very quickly. Next question, are you ready for the responsibilities of home ownership? I remember moving into my house. I saw the picture, you saw the picture earlier. It's only one acre. And I remember moving into the house and the grass started growing. And I got myself a riding mower. I thought, oh, okay, no problem. Three hours later, I'm like, this is, this takes a long time. And then less than a week later, the grass is growing again. And all of a sudden I realized I'm gonna have to spend three hours, like twice a week to cut one acre of grass. What have I gotten myself into? I love cutting the grass now, actually. I have a zero turn mower and you know, all these things, but then you gotta pay, right, for the tools to maintain the house. And all of a sudden it's like, well, I gotta have tools. I've gotta have a garage. I've gotta have this tractor. I've got all the implements. I've got someplace to store the tractor. Oh, and I gotta have the implements to, to fix the tractor. All of a sudden, things just escalate. And the house is no longer just a nice little nest, you know, where we can just have memories and take pictures for Instagram. It's like this overwhelming thing that just like consumes every living moment. Are you ready for that? Home ownership is a blessing. If you're ready for it. If you're ready for it. So you have to also consider your lifestyle, your career, your family, your other priorities. You know, if, if say someone is getting ready to retire in that stage of life, is that really the time to be buying a hundred acre homestead, right? Like these are things that have to be considered as well. Life stage. Be clear you know why. So many people I've talked to, they just think, oh, buying a house is the thing I'm supposed to do. That's what everyone says I'm supposed to do. That's what I see on TV. That's what my parents say. But like, well, why do you need a house? Sometimes people literally haven't thought that through. And we need to have reason over emotion. Buying a home is generally the largest purchase that any of us will ever make. And we need to make sure that it is a decision made wisely with reason and not just a gut reaction. Buying a home is like getting married, right? If you marry the right person, it is a lifelong blessing, the best decision ever. But you marry the wrong person, you buy the wrong house, 
It is a never-ending crisis, and you want to make sure you make the right choice. It could be a living nightmare or a massive headache. All right, so we're trying to wrap up here. Let's finish up with talking about inflation and the housing market. This is on everyone's minds, I realize, so let's talk about it. So, so there is some good news. The good news is that right now, even though we're in this time of inflated inflation, real estate historically is a good hedge against inflation. In fact, a lot of times people say, oh, if there's inflation, buy gold. Actually, looking at the data, real estate has held up against inflation better than gold. Fascinating uh, to, think, to see that. I didn't know that until I looked into it recently. Another good news is that locking in a fixed interest rate, especially if it's a low interest rate, is even better. It means we will repay with devalued dollars in the future if inflation persists. Let me give you an example. Let's say I, had, I still have my home mortgage, 3.5%. Inflation, 5.5%. The rate of my interest is going up at a slower rate of the rate of inflation, which means I'm actually making money on the mortgage. And I know I said debt is, is still slavery to the lender, and I still stand by that. So what I'm going to say right now might sound con you know, contradictory, but there is a reason why there is a shortage of houses on the market. And it's because of this reason. A bunch of people bought a bunch of property at a low interest rate, and now that inflation is high, they are not selling. A lot of wealthy people actually front-ran the inflation, and they bought up all the property at a low interest rate, and now they're just squatting on it. And they're saying this mortgage is actually an asset to them. I don't necessarily agree with that view, all right? That debt is, it can be an asset, but you understand the mathematical reasoning, at least for, for the super wealthy. So um, this is also, um, I don't know if I should go there, but let me just mention this. This is also the reason why the, gov the U.S. government needs inflation, because the inflation helps us repay the national debt. The national debt gets repaid with devalued dollars as inflation goes up. So the last point here, some good news about buying a home, is that a home will never go to zero. Home values can decline, but even if the home burns down, tornado blows it over, you still own the land, right? The land is not going to go to zero. It's a hard asset, and uh, nobody's making any more land on this planet. So there are some problems, however, right? The problem, the flip side, is that home prices are high. They were going up and up and up and up, and now that there's inflation, they're not really coming down, and because of what I was mentioning earlier, actually, I, I'll mention it more later, uh, there is a low inventory as well as inflation on home prices, and buyers may be aggressive. They're less aggressive now, from what I can see, but there was a point in time, probably about a year or two ago, where people were buying twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 above asking price, sight unseen, cash purchase, people from California trying to escape, you know, refugees coming to Tennessee, and they're just like, I just want to buy anything! And they just plunk down their, their big California dollars and uh, the buyers could be aggressive. Hopefully that's not going to stay that case much longer. But then mortgage interest rates are high and rising, maybe. Federal Reserve say, Jerome Powell seems to think that he's gonna, they're going to raise interest rates more. And this is why people aren't selling. So we've got a problem, particularly in this part of the country where a lot of people are moving in. They're not building as much. And when they do build, cost of materials are higher, inflation and people are not selling as much because they're keeping their low interest mortgage. So we have high demand, low supply, and the supply that we have costs more to build. So this is the problem with the housing market. But the other problem is we're also, if we're renting, we're also stuck on the other end because rent is also increasing. People are seeing, landlords are seeing, okay, well, there's inflation, so we're gonna have to raise the rent. It's hard to blame them, but that's the reality. And so we're caught in this negative feedback loop of, what are we going to do if we want to buy a house? So these are the questions. When will the market cool off? When will home prices come down? Will interest rates come down? Will there be a market crash in 2008? There's a saying, it goes like this. Making predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> the answer is no one knows. The Federal Reserve doesn't know, the President doesn't know, Congress doesn't know, your, realtor, your real estate agent doesn't know, Warren Buffett doesn't know, nobody really knows. Timing the market is a fool's errand. And also, 
the reality is, just like whenever we hear about real estate, it's location, 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 right? The three most important things. And location varies. The conditions here in Tennessee and Chattanooga is different than Los Angeles, is different than New York, is different than Orlando, is different in Canada or Singapore, wherever else. So how do we respond to these things? Focus on what you can control. That is what we need to do. Number one, reconsider how much house you really need. Do you really need this, you know, 4,000 square foot mansion with 60 acres of farmland out in the country? Maybe we don't need as much, okay? There is a question that we need to discuss and think about. Save as big of a down payment as possible, at least 10%, preferably 20% or more. I know this is hard. I'm not saying it's easy. But if your target is 20%, then having 5% is better than having 2%, right? Even if you don't make it all the way up there. That's just the, that is a variable that you can control. Plan to stay in the house for at least six years, preferably 10 or more. We discussed that earlier. For break even, you're really gonna have to uh, evaluate if that is a, a possibility for you and your family. Don't do adjustable rate mortgages, arms. Stick with fixed rate mortgages. I actually know several people who got into an adjustable rate mortgage before interest rates started going up, assuming that, oh yeah, everything's gonna be fine. And then all of a sudden they're coming up on on the adjustable, you know, when it's gonna adjust and they're gonna be looking at a massive increase in interest. That is a problem. Ensure that your monthly payment is no more than 25% of take-home pay. This is a tough one. And this is, again, it's a guideline to help you not get over-leveraged. But this also means home is gonna be smaller. Mortgage is gonna to have to be smaller. But uh, this is actually something I do agree with Dave Ramsey on. A lot of banks will approve you for up to 33 or 36% of your gross income, but this is 25% of your take-home pay. It's gonna be smaller, but it's better to have a smaller house that you can actually pay back and pay off than a big house that the bank might foreclose on, okay? Also, we need to be patient. Patience, the patience of the saints. Sometimes the market just tells us you gotta wait. And right now at this market, I think it really demands a lot of patience. It's not a time to rush. It is not a buyer's market necessarily. The last point I want to end here is we want to ask God to be our realtor. We serve a God, I believe, that is still in the business of multiplying the oil like he did for the widow. Not long ago, I had some friends who, they were living in Southern California and they wanted to buy a home. They've been renting and they were wondering where they were gonna go and they were praying and the Lord showed them that they needed to stay near Loma Linda where they were working. They were youth leaders, they were active, they were very, they had people coming, you know, they were giving Bible studies and they were very active and they just needed more space, they want to start a family and they felt the Lord calling them to buy a house and they were in a position where they felt that they could do that. And this was several, like two years ago and they were looking at homes and sometimes while they were in the house, the realtor would get the call, oh, somebody bought the house. They accepted an offer from someone else. There would be other times they would put in an offer, asking price, we're giving you exactly what you want. And they said, sorry. They picked someone else who paid 20,000 more, offered 20,000 more than you did. And they went through this process. They saw probably four dozen homes over a period of several years or maybe 12 or 14, 16 months, something like that. And it was like every week they were in a different house. They got to the point, they tell me, they would walk in the house and even if it was marginally acceptable, they're like, we have to put an offer in right now. And they were risking like 20,000, 40,000 above, you know, asking presents, like just thinking of these irrational behaviors because they're like, we are going to lose another house. Like there's also this competitive spirit, right? Like we don't want to lose. And finally, they came to their senses, and they were praying to God and said, Lord, this is not your spirit. We want this house to be a blessing, not a curse. We're, we're stretching our budget. We're getting stressed out. We're snapping at each other. We're just not seeing you in this process. So they were praying. And they said, Lord, we only want your will to be done. And so they said, okay, we're not going to break our budget. We have our number. That's what it's going to be. We're just going to go in trusting God. They asked God to be their realtor. They went over to look at this house. Wonderful house. 
It, it had potential, and they're you know, kind of handy people, so they, they could imagine, oh, we can remodel, and this is how we can do this. And they were already dreaming a little bit, but they're like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Remember, we made a, you know, we made a commitment to God that we're going to be rational about this. So they had their number. They put in the offer. The realtor called them back and said, I have never seen something like this happen before. Oh, actually, let me, let me back up. I'm missing a important part of the story. They put in the offer. I don't remember if it was the asking price or a little below, whatever it was. It was within the confines of their budget. And they wrote a letter. They had a letter to the seller. And they said, Dear Mr. Mrs. So-and-so, we are a young family dedicated to the Lord. We have dedicated that whatever home we're going to buy is going to be used for ministry for God. And they shared a little bit of their involvement in local youth groups and Bible studies. Da, 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 da. Like, we just want to let you know a little bit about ourselves. We would be honored if you would accept, you know, our offer. So the realtor submitted all that and came back and said, you wouldn't believe what happened. They got an offer significantly above asking price, way above what you were offering, but they read your letter. And this couple, they were elderly Christian people, and they said, those are the young people that God wants to have this house. Is God still in the business of working miracles? I visited their house. I've been there. Beautiful place. They've done a lot of work to fix it up, and indeed, it is a place of ministry. And the Lord is able to bless us if we seek his will. So yes, the housing market, looking at the, the numbers, inflation, interest rates, it seems hopeless. It seems impossible. It seems unreasonable. But we serve a living God in heaven. And if he wants us, whether it be a home you know, near work or out in the country where we can raise our kids or whatever it might be, ask God to be a realtor. That's the closing thought here. So we're going to close with prayer. I went a little bit over, I'm sorry, but... Uh, we're going to close with prayer, and if there are a few questions, we will continue. We'll go ahead and take some questions as well. But let's close with prayer at this time as we conclude. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are still in the business of taking care of your people. Even if we are in debt, even if we are looking for a home, even if we have a car loan or student loans that we need help with, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You multiplied the loaves and the fishes to feed the 5,000. You worked the miracle for that widow and his children and her children. We know you are still alive and you can work for us today. And so we pray that you will help us to use our minds to, to help us to be faithful with the principles they have given to us and that you will be able to open the way for us to see you work providentially for us as we seek uh, your help. Bless us this evening, especially as we go from this place. Keep us safe until we meet again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.